out your scriptures to Hebrews chapter 13. Can't believe we're here. We're at the last sermon in Hebrews. I was looking back over my uh, notes, and I think we started right about this time last year. So, there you go, for what it's worth. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 22. Chapter 13 is all about living in this unshakable kingdom. Uh, And chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, talk about we're now in this new kingdom. And we're to live a new and different type of life because of that. And as in many of the New Testament letters, if you if you read over the New Testament letters, you you realize after a while that that what you have there is the first roughly half of every letter is is talking about the the indicatives, the what who Christ is, what he has done for you. And in the second half of those letters, the pattern is that roughly second half is that then there's the imperatives here are here's what you are to do because of that. And Hebrews is a little different and then it takes 12 chapters to talk about the indicatives in Christ and in this one chapter, chapter 13, that, that tells us because of what Christ has done, because of who Christ is, this is how you're supposed to live. And so last year we began looking at this different way of living and we looked at a different type of love that we're supposed to have. We're supposed to have this brotherly love, chapter 13, verse 1. This, this stranger love, love our strangers among us, love the strangers, that's uh, shown in hospitality. We're to have this radical, ordinary type of hospitality lifestyle. We're also to love the oppressed, those in prison, the, the, those, that, those that don't have. And uh, so that, that's to be a different way that we approach life, a different type of life. But secondly, we looked at a different type of, of love, a different type of life. We're to have a high view of marriage. We're to have, if you will, a low view of money, meaning we're not to be lovers of money. And third, and this is what we're going to focus our time on, is we're to, ha- we're to have a different type of community, if you will, a different type of community. Look with me at verse 7 in chapter 13 where the author lays out this different type of community. There in verse 7, God's word says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burnt outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Through him, 
Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us that we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Heavenly Father, we ask you to come and speak to your people through me, through your word that I pray I have exegeted well. Lord, may the things that I say that are of you last and the things that I say that are not disappear. Cover my tracks, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So this different type of community has a different type of leadership. And this leadership is an imitative leadership, if you will. We're to have an imitative leadership. That's what he's saying in verse 7. Part of living in this new community is, is we're to look at how others live their faith out and imitate them. Verse 7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We are to be a community who remembers the past, who remembers the leaders in the past. And we are to imitate their faith. I bet nobody here knows or remembers the name Amos Alonzo Stagg. Does anybody, does that ring a bell for anybody? Amos Alonzo Stagg. There's one in the room. That's amazing. But I bet you if you asked Bill Belichick who that was, he would know exactly who that was. From 1892 to 1932, for 40 years, he coached the football program at the University of Chicago. They were the original monsters of the midway before the Chicago Bears took on that moniker. For decades, and for long after Stagg's tenure there, you couldn't go very far on campus without bumping into his influence. Not only did he lead the Maroons to two national titles in 1905 and 1913, but he also invented things such as the huddle, the onside kick, the forward pass. He He invented these things. And so for the last hundred years, whether coaches knew it or not, they were imitating Coach Stagg. In the same way here, the author is saying, look back, look, think back in your memory of, of the leaders in your, in the Christian faith that you have walked. Remember what they did well. Recall what they did well. Recall the faith that they lived out well. And endeavor to imitate that. That's a good thing. Borrow from them, if you will. For example, remember those leaders who finished the race well. Do you have, do you have leaders that you can recall that, that just finished the race well? 
That's what Paul is calling Timothy and the Corinthian church to do when he says, follow me as I follow Christ. He's saying, listen, remember what I did among you and imitate me. He writes to Timothy, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time for my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. He is telling Timothy, look at my life. I've run the race well. What I have done well, imitate me. So who does it in, the, in your past that finished well? Just take a moment. Verse 7 says, take a moment. Who is it that finished well the race of faith? Who continued to, to serve the church well into their dotage? That's what I consider finishing well. It's part of it. Who are those older men and women who continued to pour themselves into the younger men and women? Who continued to disciple into their 70s and 80s and 90s? I'm heavily influenced by an elder in my previous church, Grady Spires. He was in his 70s when I was there, and I, I asked him one day if he would disciple me, and he was more than willing to give up time for three years of his life to pour into me while I was there. Who is it that died well as a Christian? Have you ever thought about that? Who is it that died well? Michael Card wrote in his book, The Walk, about a seminary professor when he was on the campus of Western Kentucky University who influenced him, and he fell into a deep and abiding discipleship relationship with him. His name is New Testament professor William Lane. Some may know that name. Years later, after Lane poured into his life, they, they stayed close throughout his whole life, and years later, he got a phone call saying that his dear mentor, William Lane, had contracted cancer and was dying. And then he received a phone call from William Lane himself, who said, Michael, I, I want to move close to you as I die. Michael Card was like, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to move close to me? And he said, because I want you to witness me dying well. That's amazing. What leaders in your past are worthy of imitating and learning from? I'll always remember a, a pastor in of one of the churches I attended, Pastor Alan Christensen. He was a pastor of, uh, of Wilton, Hope, Hope Church in Wilton. And I was there in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, and, and, and that church was just racked with those worship wars that were going on at that time. Contemporary worship, traditional worship, and, and the church was splitting. A young new assistant pastor was leading a contemporary worship. He was leading the, the traditional worship, and, and the, the, the congregation was fracturing. We went through months, actually about a year and a half, of member meetings and round tables and teachings and trying to bring everybody together and understand. We finally got to a, a member vote, and the vote was to keep the contemporary music in the church. And I remember that night where he got up to the pulpit, and he looked around and he said, listen, 
We, we have talked about this. We have prayed about this. We have now voted on this. And this is the direction of the church. This is the direction of the church. And they said this, and I'll never forget this. And if you can't abide that, maybe this isn't the church for you. I consider that worth imitating. He was patient. He allowed the congregation to speak. But then there was a time when it said, if, if you cannot help but be disruptive, maybe this isn't the church for you. That's strength. That's patience. That's grace. And I think that's worth imitating. He saved that church, I think. Well, the Spirit saved that church, but he was used. That church continues to thrive today. But we're just not to look back. I think we're called to imitate your present leaders as well, to imitate your present elders as well. I said back in the Sunday school class that this is one of the harder weeks, one of the harder texts to preach on because... I'm preaching about my own job description. I'm preaching about what it is to be an elder. And that's difficult. And part of what being an elder is, is is the congregation looks to the elders to imitate their way of life. Paul said it in two different ways, two different times, to two different people. Imitate me as I follow Christ. As I follow Christ, imitate me. There's a call to watch the leaders, to imitate their conduct, their aim in life, their faith, their patience, their love, their sufferings. And that's what the Bible calls you to do to your elders. You should look at your elders and examine their lives and how they can be a model to you. Not a perfect model, but a model. Do they have parts of their lives that have glimmerings of the Savior. I want to draw your attention to your elders today. Henry is one of your elders. I can tell you that he is meek. I can tell you that he is humble. I can tell you one of the things that I admire about him and try to model is he is quick to listen and really slow to speak. That's a good quality that I need to learn. I want to draw your attention to Aaron Hansen, another one of your elders. He is wise. He knows his scripture well. He is also quick to listen and slow to speak. He is stable in his emotions. Personally, I try to imitate him in how he meditates deeply on Scripture. He'll just read the same book over and over again and just meditate on it. And that's a good thing. I want to draw your attention to your elder Mark, Wolfolk. He is eminently teachable and humble. He is repentant. He is sensitive to the body. He wears his heart on his sleeve. 
He is, lives a transparent life, and, and, and he loves the Word of God. You know, one of the things I, I, I love is when he comes running into my office. He doesn't run, but he comes into my office. That's how I feel it is sometimes. But he comes into my office, and he says, Oh, I love the book of just the blank there. It can be any book at all. He's just read it, and he's like, it is such, It's my favorite book now. It's my favorite book. He loves the Word of God. Now, Ed Noonan will soon be examined by you to be an elder in this church, to be your elder. And one of the questions you should be asking yourself, is he worthy of imitation? What areas of his life glimmer and remind you of the Savior? I can tell you when I... Look at him, I see a sober-minded man, a stable man, a self-controlled man, a humble and teachable man, a hospitable man, a man who is disciplined in his time where the word is concerned and where prayer is concerned, someone who is worthy of imitation. And so as we imitate Christ, Imitate us as far as we imitate Christ. We're not perfect. We don't claim to be perfect. There's plenty of times, and I'm, I'm sure each of you sitting there could, could just sit down, look down at your palm and go, well, Blake, this is not this, not this. I, absolutely. We're not perfect. And we will fail. And when we fail... Look it down at verse 8. That's where your mind should go. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As our lives remind you of Christ, look at Christ. That's where you're, who you should be imitating. That's who you should be putting your faith in. Don't put your faith in any of your elders. Put your faith in Jesus Christ only. He's the only one worthy of that type of devotion. He's the only one worthy of that type of imitation. He's the only one worthy who is, who is perfectly quick to listen and perfectly slow to speak. He's the only one who is the definition of humility and meekness. He's the only one who is the perfect word. He's the incarnate word. He is the only one that you should put that type of weight on. He's the only one who can be trusted with everything. And that trust that you have in Jesus should be reflected in your relationship with your elders. And that's the second aspect of living in this new kingdom. We should have look to our elders and our leaders for imitate them but also to to trust your leaders the wall street journal in an article written years ago wrote this people want to be lightly governed by strong governments people like and want to be lightly governed by strong governments that sense taps into what we all once were as, as a small child. You wanted your dad to be big and strong and invincible, right? 
But when he dealt with you, you wanted him to be perfectly tender. In the final analysis, people want to be lightly governed by strong governments because that's how God governs. The omnipotent ruler of the universe is also the one who says, a bruised reed I will not break, and a smoldering wick I will not snuff out. Lots of muscle, lots of restraint. That's a rare combination. And that's, a, that's the rare combination that, that God calls his people into. This trusting relationship. Church is not an autocracy. In other words, the pastor doesn't make all the decisions. The church is not an oligarchy either, where, where there's just a few making all the decisions. And, and by the way, the church is not a democracy either where you make all the decisions. The church operates in a kind of a unique space. A loving family, but a living organism. We have to, we have to, we have to come to understand that. And that's part of what is being shown through in, in, these, in verse 17 here. The church is to operate on trust. First, a trust that is given to the elders by God. A trust that is given to the elders by God. The elder in Christ's church must understand that he has been given authority, entrusted them by God. That's implied in the words obey and submit. It's just implied there. God given authority. Paul told the elders at Ephesus, pay Careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Later, Paul, writing to the elder Titus, says, Declare these things, Titus. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. See, there's a type of ministerial or, or ecclesiological or church authority given to leaders in God's church which is limited by Scripture. Which is limited by Scripture. That doesn't give the elders in any church the, the authority to tell you to do anything they want. It's limited and guided by Scripture. An elder's authority extends as far as the Scripture extends and no further. Where the Scripture speaks, the elders can speak with authority. Where the Scripture directs, the elders can direct with authority. Where the scriptures correct, admonishes, and rebukes, the elder can correct, admonish, and rebuke with authority. But this authority, and here, here's the rub for, for all elders and would-be elders in God's church, this authority has to be tempered with amazing amounts of humility. It has to be there. Peter, writing to the scattered churches, wrote this, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. There's the directive. Exercise oversight. There's the authority. Not under compulsion, but willing, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then he goes on to say, not domineering over those in your charge. 
but being examples to the flock. Exercise authority in a non-domineering way, in a humble way. I really like how Hewell Jones put it in his commentary. He said this, It is not a domineering intrusiveness into people's lives, which denies Christian liberty and discourages Christian maturity, but a paternal care, which gives people help when they need running towards the goal, so that that they do not go off track nor quit running. Isn't that great? That's a good definition for what it says here, watching over people's souls. Giving people help when they need it, running towards that goal that we're all striving for. Finishing well, finishing the race well, ending well. Sometimes it looks like a shoulder to cry on for an elder. Sometimes it it looks like just sitting with somebody while they're suffering. Sometimes it's an encouraging word from Scripture. Sometimes it's, it's listening to somebody, process out loud. But it also means sometimes challenging somebody's interpretation of Scripture. Have you considered this? Sometimes it, it's speaking a little more truth at that time than grace. And that's hard. Sometimes it's warning somebody that they're going off track. Be careful. What gives an elder courage to do any of this? You know, it would be so much easier if we didn't have to say the hard things. Let's just go along. You know, whatever people want to do, we'll just support them. Whatever people want to think theologically, we'll just support them. We'll just smile a whole lot. What gives an elder courage to say, you're wrong? What gives an elder courage to say, careful, you could be in danger here? Well, it's right here. It's right here in Scripture. It says it in verse 17. Obey the leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as men who must give an account. There's the courage. The elders here kind of bring this up every once in a while just to remind us, just to kind of give us the courage to say things, to do things, to lead in a certain direction we are actually going to stand before God and give an account for the souls that God has given us responsibility over. In other words, I will hear, I think, I mean, I don't know what the final judgment is going to look like, but here I'll paint a picture for you. I think I will hear the names of everybody in that covenant book, one by one, Blake, Melissa Beal. How'd you watch over her soul? What'd you do? How'd you care for her? Bernie Woody. Blake, how'd you watch over the soul? And that's what gives us courage. To say good things, encouraging things, positive things, to smile with you, 
to rejoice with you and to say the hard things. That's what gives an elder that, that kind of courage. So there's a humility and trust that goes into eldering. But there's also a humility trust on your end. Have you thought about that? There's a humility and trust on your end. John MacArthur says, just as church leaders are to rule in love and humility, those under their care are to submit in loving humility. In other words, very simply, very plainly, obey and submit, you know those words that we kind of choke over? You know what that's basically saying? Trust. Trust them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. That's what those two words are communicating. First Thessalonians 5 Verses 14 and 15. It says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Trust your elders. Stuart Oliot wrote this. I think it's a good definition, a good, good, good outlining here. Recognize them as leaders by submitting to their teaching at every point where it is biblical and by being open with them about everything that bears upon the welfare of your soul and the welfare of the church. As far as scripture goes, listen to them and be open with them about your life and about the life of the church. And that's a different way of living than the world lives. It's just different. But that's part of what it is to trust your elders. Choosing to believe that what they're doing in the church and what they're doing in your life is not a power grab. It's not that we want to control things. It's not impinged because we want you to live a less free life. Trust is choosing to believe that elders have your best interest in mind. And that's the diagnostic question that you have to answer for yourself. Do you believe that elders have your best interest in mind? Do you believe that? Do you believe that the elder decision to stop a ministry in the best interest of the body and the gospel is in your best interest? Do you believe that elders' encouragement to you for, to do something that you're currently not doing is in your best interest? Do you believe that elders' choice of teaching and preaching is in your best interest? Do you believe that elders admonishing a part of your life, correcting a part of your life, rebuking a part of your life is actually in your best interest? John Lehman in his article, Authority, God's Good and Dangerous Gift, writes this. Good authority doesn't just work from the top down, but also from the bottom up. Good authority says, let me be the platform on which you build your life. 
I'll supply you, I'll fund you, I'll resource you, I'll guide you. Good authority binds in order to loosen, corrects in order to teach, trims in order to grow, disciplines in order to train, legislates in order to build, judges in order to redeem, studies in order to innovate. It is a teacher teaching, a coach coaching, a mother mothering. Authority in the church says, trust me, and I'll give you a garden in which to create a world. Good authority says, I love you. When good and non-domineering, biblically based trust is met with giving the elder the trust without having to earn it all, then the fruit is the last part of 17. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. See, there's a, a two-way benefit here. The job of the elder becomes a joy. The uh, job of the elder becomes something that we look forward to doing. That we don't come in and go, oh. That the weight is not crushing. But it has a two-way thing, too. You, you, you the congregation, begins to grow. Authority is the soil in which growth happens. That's how you grow as a Christian. You put yourself under the authority of Jesus Christ and you grow, Lord willing. And the church is is the pot, if you will, in which that soil is put in that gives you the boundaries in order to grow well. I'm th- I think of my my, my uh, cactus in my office. Cactus, I didn't know this for a long time, but cacti like to have their roots bound. They grow when their roots are confined. When there's boundaries to their roots is when they grow. Those boundaries are good in your life. Lastly, and very briefly, we live in this unshakable kingdom and it requires a different type of worship. That's what the author is reinforcing in verses 9 through 16. We are to worship Christ and Christ alone. Charles Spurgeon wrote, I believe in a very large majority of churches, people are merely unthinking, slumbering worshipers of an unknown God. And that should not describe us. We should come here knowing exactly who and how to worship Jesus Christ. This section is rife with allusions to things such as altars and food and sacrifices and gates and temple and, and tents. And to really understand this section of scripture, you really have to hearken back to why this letter was written. This letter was written to Jews who have become Christians, who have come under intense Roman persecution and are thinking of turning their back on Christ. If we just get rid of this Christian thing and go back to our Jewish way of life, the pressure will stop. And it probably would. And what this is saying and what this is doing is warning and encouraging that group 
by saying, whatever, if you go back to those things, they're of no use to you. As a matter of fact, he uses strong language here. He says in verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. You know what those diverse and strange teachings are in context? Judaism. Don't go back to Judaism. That's, that's now strange teaching. That's now false religion. Since Jesus Christ has come, all the trappings of Judaism are now useless to you. Since Christ, the food in verse 9, the kosher diet, is of no spiritual value to you anymore. We are now a people separated from the world spiritually. A spiritual house, as Peter writes. Second, since Christ, there is no more holy place, verse 11. Just holy people. When we gather here in God's name, this is a holy space right now. When we leave and go downstairs later, this ceases to be a holy space. It's only holy because we are here. Since Christ, the priestly role is done away with, verse 11. We now have a high priest in the order of Melchizedek who doesn't offer up bulls and goats and lambs, but he offers up himself. Since Christ, there's no more blood needed to be spilt and spattered for the forgiveness of sin. That's verse 12. Because Jesus gave his own blood. We're just about to enter into the time when we realize that, when we remember that. My, this is my blood that is given for the forgiveness of many. Since Christ, there's no more animals that need to be symbolically sacrificed for sin. Verse 11. Because Jesus gave his own body once and for all. He substituted his body for ours. He took the penalty of sin on his body. By his wounds, we are healed. We just sang that. You see, he suffered outside the city gate so that we wouldn't have to. He bore the reproach and blame so that we don't have to. He died outside the city so that we could live forever inside an everlasting city. He was separated from God so that we never have to be separated from God. Because of what he has done for us, that's why we praise him. That's why we sing. That's why we give him are everything. We're just saying that. You've heard it said many times before, I'll say it again, really good movies are really good because they have the gospel inside them somewhere. And The Lion King, at least the, the version, the animated version years ago, is a really good movie because it really mirrors the gospel. I just want to take us back to that scene when, when Simba is, is presented for the first time, you know, in the beginning of the movie. It's interesting, the new movie doesn't do this. I thought it was very interesting. In the old version, he's brought up by that elder monkey, elder, and he you know, thrusts him up like this, and, and the animals that have come from everywhere start to just go over, you know, rejoice that there's this baby born, Right? And then, after a minute of rejoicing, do you remember what they do? 
they bow. That's missing from the new one. I thought that was very interesting. They bow in reverence. That's a good picture of how it should be for us as we enter this Advent season. As we en- enter the season when, when we really focus on this, this new baby being born, being thrust up. Let's remember this grand picture. It is Christ and what our reaction should really be to that. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And Spirit, I pray now as we go into the Lord's table that you will help us, Lord, to understand that mystery in in a new and different way, in a deeper way. Help us to plumb what you have done for us through these two symbols. In Jesus' name, amen.